0: The Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, or as we like to call it, Herath, is Australia's premier cultural event, devoted exclusively to the exploration of human rights issues through art and film. For today's episode, I was lucky enough to be able to sit down with Imogen, who leads this incredible institution. Welcome, Imogen. I'd love to start this conversation by having you tell us how HRAF began.
1: Sure, so HRAF was founded in 2007 by two really just bright, exceptional, strong women, Nazmantu and Evelyn Tedros. And they were both students at the time and they started HRAF because they recognized Um, I guess the really urgent need to reach and engage the general public on human rights issues, which which just wasn't happening at the time. And they also recognised that it needed to be done through a language or a medium that was universally understood. So um, that kind of formed the basis of the approach. But they also really wanted to celebrate the arts and music and, you know, just vibrant, rich community culture that exists in Melbourne. So when they brought the two together, they created HAF. And a lot has changed since it was founded in, you know, 14 years ago. But that original intention of um, engaging people on human rights issues through a universal language um, still remains at the core of what we do today.
0: That is a beautiful and inspiring startup story. And I really want to find out, how did you get involved?
1: Uh, It's a great question. Thank you. I think it was around, it would have been around 2009, so two years after it had started, when I first became consciously aware of craft. So I'd recently finished up studying film production at RMIT and as a graduate film student obviously local film festivals with an international reach were pretty top of mind. So from then I certainly had a real respect for what craft did back then as did the rest of the student body, but what really changed for me was um I guess this respect and understanding of craft's importance evolved pretty significantly around the 2015 mark when I started to come into contact with craft professionally by coincidence. So And that was during my foray into the retail sector. So I was working in business development at the time. And I remember really clearly when Tracy Hutchinson, um, the then CEO and just all around media legend, who I'm sure you know or are at least aware of, Jesse, I remember when she was sitting across the table from me and a colleague pitching for our support of the festival. So we were sort of on the the other side of the conversation, if you like, um, to what I am today. And I remember just thinking how, extraordinarily important and innovative this work is, as Tracy conveyed it to us, which is to galvanise audiences on social justice issues in a really creative way, or to to cut through the noise of news and statistics, and above all, to speak outside the echo chamber by bringing the private sector along, if you like. And that said, I mean, even though I was extremely impressed, it would be a few years before I developed, I guess, enough of an understanding of the human rights space to join the organisation, And I remember applying for a volunteer position really soon after the meeting that I just mentioned, assuming that my enthusiasm and senior level event management experience was everything I needed. And it absolutely was not. (laughs) I was not successful in that volunteer role, which at the time was pretty disappointing. But I understand completely now, Um, just because I really believe that. I think when we turn up for this kind of work and by this kind of work, I mean anything that connects directly or indirectly with social impact outcomes, I think you have to do your due diligence. I mean, in order to educate others, we must educate ourselves. In order to question other opinions, we must question our own. In order to understand inequality, we must understand the ways in which we have benefited from it. And, and this is really, really epic, necessary personal work, and it never ends, but it has to start, and I had to get started. So it would be a few years before I would actually Formally join the organisation.
0: What was the volunteer role? I, I'm so curious. I'm trying to picture Imogen as a volunteer at HRAF and doing like not not so good at being a volunteer.
1: <laughs> no, I, did, I, I didn't even receive the position. I, I had an interview, and that was it. <laughs> um, it was awards coordinator, which is a really important role. And you know, to be honest with you, our entire organisation for its 14 years has survived on and thrived on the efforts of over a thousand volunteers. So you know it's not to be taken lightly but that awards coordinator position would have um would have included i suppose the coordination of the awards process so every year um within the major festival the main festival event that we run um we award a number of different accolades to you know best impact film or audience choice um uh, best new director etc so yeah that was the role <laughs> which i thought i was perfect for but yeah it's just really interesting reflecting on that and realizing that it's not just about a certain professional skill set it's also about having a worldview and understanding the systems that we're that we're fighting against in this work
0: so then the next question is how did you become the ceo It might be a really straight question but like where were you at in your life when you saw the opportunity
1: so i've been the ceo for just over a year now and had a fairly straight down the line predictable recruitment process but in terms of where I was at in my life so i mentioned that i was working in the retail sector long before this um after i left the retail sector i started working for something called festival 21 which is a festival that explores the role of food in climate change and social justice and population health so i um was a part of that brilliant organisation for a couple of years as a director festival 21 is what i love about it is that it's all about the way that food influences things so food being something that is so universal yet so personal our experience of that and how much power there is in something that's so simple that you know is part of our lives I was really drawn into that idea and I think it wasn't simply that Festival 21 um, had wrapped for another year and that I was looking for something else to do it was more that within the remit of Festival 21 we started to discover how equally or you know or even more importantly how important the role of art was in influencing change and in reaching people and really transcending a lot of the information, the numbers, you know, the news, um, the noise that's out there that, you know, we can reach people, whether it's through food or through art. And this is, there's something in that. There's something so powerful in that. So I think for me, it was more of a natural segue than anything else to transition from food into art, um, if that makes sense. And I think anyone who feels the same will know what I'm talking about straight away, but just something that's so tactile and so unspoken that can really communicate big, big ideas and big feelings and big things. I think that was my personal transition. And um, also drawing on the fact that, you know, my you know where I had started was film production. You know, that's what I studied and that's what I, um, how I broke into the workforce as well. And so I really missed that medium as well. Um, that said, as much as I love film, I, I love filmmakers. I love creatives. And I, you know, I feel that my life's work is to organise and to facilitate the incredible work there that's happening in that sector. So that's kind of how I ended up somewhat you know, in my own time at a glacial pace, but eventually in this role.
0: Yeah, no, I can totally see that. I think it would be hard to go back, like once you've seen what meaningful work can look like.
1: Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I think once you, you know, a lot of people do come from a commercial background. And again, you know, it's really important. I don't want to undermine that or minimize that. But once you heed the call of not-for-profit work or purpose-driven work or, you know, impact work, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, once you start, you you cannot stop. You can't go backwards on that kind of, um On that sort of process that internal work that happens that manifests as your um, external work.
0: So you've been observing the festival for quite some time now and there's been various touch points and then since last year you've you've come on board as a CEO. Have you got any stories as far as like the highlights
1: of previous festivals? I mean there are some pretty cool things that have happened over the course of 14 years. I mean if we're thinking just in terms of milestones the festivals had over a hundred thousand people attend, which I think is extraordinary, given that it started out as a volunteer-run, um, you know, student-run organization that was just really wanted to go about change in any way possible. But you know, what started on the kitchen table of Evelyn Tadros in two thousand and seven is now gone to Darwin and Sydney and Alice Springs and Launceston and Perth and so many major cities and regional areas in between. And when I look back on, I guess, a retrospective of her achievements, and I, I think. For me, what's really special is that there has been so much from so many places all around the world. You know, we've screened over 500 different films from all over and some of those titles have gone on to be some of the most influential pieces of, um, you know, cinema and art in such the social justice movement all around the world. I mean, like the Homeless World Cup in Cape Town to um, com- combating domestic violence by surfing the Papua New Guinea waves or exploring Pat Dodson and R.T. Roach's vision of Indigenous reconciliation to the inspirational story of, American civil rights activist, Maya Angelou. I mean, I think there are so many different people all around the world and all throughout history that have done such incredible work. And to be able to document to to be able to document that and share that through something like film is really powerful. But not just what's happened on the screen as part of HRAF's remit. I mean, the people that have attended HRAF are all exceptional in their own right. I mean, we've hosted 400 local and international speakers ranging from like Oscar-nominated directors to the former president and prime minister of East Timor um, so I think that range, you know, the the nexus of um, social justice and art and cinema coming together, this is incredibly powerful and I think that forms the foundation of HRAF's significant since its inception. Yeah, I mean, I think for me that stands out as being really special but also the multifaceted nature of the art that has come into the orbit of HRAF, um, whether that's like music concerts or poetry slams or theatre productions, or running competitions, or even fashion parades. Perhaps been really fortunate to be led, to have been led by so many different people with you know, fresh ideas and new ways of thinking. Um, so everything I've mentioned, like that's all due to the previous executives like Ev or Naz or Ella McNeil or Matthew Bernetti or Lauren Valadre. So yeah, when I look back on that 14 years, I feel really proud to be in this position and to see the fruits of their labour that has come together in the list that I just mentioned. Yeah, it's very impressive. Oh, I have another thought. <laughs> yes, go. <laughs> on, behalf, on behalf of them, thank you. But, um, yeah, I think for me, going back to what I said originally, about the fact that this started out on Ev's kitchen table and that this was purely, like, volunteer-powered and led um, and gained so much momentum and traction and resonated with people in so many different ways throughout the years, Um I think that's really exceptional and really paves the way forward for how much more it can do as well.
0: Wow, it's it's such a legacy that Ev's created. You were just um, mentioning earlier about like new experiences and new ideas that come and I think uh, the festival for this year was probably both um, an experience and new idea needed. Could you talk to us about... <laughs>
1: I feel like I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Could you talk to us about what, what happened with the festival
1: for this year? I'm amazed that we got this far into the conversation without already bringing up a pandemic, to be honest. I think that's (laughs) quite amazing for us. (laughs) Yeah, so where to begin? I mean, like every single person on the planet, I and this organisation have been impacted by these unprecedented circumstances. Um, So we were set to host the annual festival from the 14th till the 30th of May of this year. And of course the world, I mean, for us as a team and as an events-based organisation, I remember the day that we found out that Dark MoFo had been cancelled, um, which was due to happen in June of this year. And when the announcement came out, they were the first festival of their size to make that decision, a really brave decision. And as soon as that announcement was made, we just kind of felt like, OK, there's you know something's about to happen. And lo and behold, it was only a matter of days before... Um, Public gatherings over five hundred people had been banned, and then over over one hundred had been banned, and then we were all working from home pretty quickly so I feel like it was in, within the space of four days that we made the call to well, we didn't use the word cancel at the time, but we were definitely not going to run the festival um as it had been intended. That's what we knew, but we were really really lucky like we're we were able to be pretty agile because we were about two weeks out from releasing tickets to the festival, which meant that in terms of like, um, you know, major expenses and outlays, you know, none of that had happened for us. So the timing was was pretty okay for us, considering all the circumstances. So we were able to shift things around fairly rapidly. All of that said, you know, things were changing so quickly as they still are and uncertainty became more and more the only certainty. And so we just felt that um, we needed to really, you know, just kind of back down the hatches and prepare for the worst and um not to make it sound like we we weren't fatalistic about it we were just more you know we sort of kicked into gear and felt felt like we needed to make some practical decisions and this is ahead of any announcement of any um, government support at any level um particularly for the art sector but we just felt that we had no idea what was going to happen but we knew that we could sustain the organization without our you know Ticket revenue for the year, which is you know over thirty percent of our um of our annual revenue, we could last for probably about three months, three or four at our current structure. So, all of that in mind, scary as that is, we just felt that now is the time for us to not sort of not withdraw into um, planning our own demise. Although you know I'm pragmatic, and I feel like we need to always be you know we need contingency plans and risk management and all that kind of thing to. Um keep us afloat, but at the same time we really felt that raf had and has a role to play in providing some sort of uh, source of connection or comfort in amongst all of this uncertainty. so with that in mind, we decided to, like so many um, arts organizations, so many organizations across the board, all sectors, to embrace the online space and to not just to shift our existing festival program that we had intended for may to internet, but to create something completely new altogether that was really um, in response to exactly what is happening right now and exactly what we felt we, um, as an extension of our audience and the the creatives that we exist for, needed. So we introduced something called Humankind, presented by RAF, and Humankind is a seven-day online film festival, which presents a selection of films that speak to um, different themes that uh, attributes of the human spirit or you know, things that define and characterise the human experience in a positive way. So the first iteration, and you know, we had no idea if this was going to be like the last, sort of the last gesture or sort of a, a parting word of HRAF, but um, we ran the pilot iteration of it in uh, May to coincide with the final week of what would have been HRAF 2020. We showed one film per day, one thing per film, and it ended up being something completely different for us, but really redefining. And you know, we had so much support from our audience, for example. And we were in a position that we could incorporate an artist performance for each for each screening, which was fantastic as well. And the more time we spent on bringing it to life, the more opportunity we saw in this period of change and questioning how we do things and why we do things and who we're doing it for and cut to now for various reasons you know not including but not limited to um keeper payments you know we're still our lights are still on and that's saying a lot I mean it's not lost on me that this is extremely precarious for the arts sector this time and to still be going um is kind of a miracle. Uh, so we'll be bringing back another iteration of humankind in October, as I mentioned earlier. And we're using this time to really reevaluate and reassess not just our viability from a commercial standpoint, but also, um, as I've touched on, why we do what we do and our viability in terms of the impact that we set out to make and create, and the um, the integrity of that impact. Um, you know, how are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Who are doing it for? As I keep saying. In terms of what happens next for film festivals and, you know, really for the art sector more broadly, CPH Docs was the first film festival that really had to contend with the world turning upside down. I mean, their program was, what, like a week out when things really went into lockdown What at what felt like a global kind of scale. Uh, and so they they didn't just pivot they catapulted into a sort of a new way of delivering or you know offering that program um which was you know they did proceed with an online iteration of it and it was extremely successful they managed that transition like absolute experts as if it had been the plan all along which was really remarkable to witness and really set this incredible benchmark for film festivals all around the world and then you had um a completely different approach, which is uh, the We Are One Film Festival, which was kind of like you know, sort of deemed it was seen as this you know super festival because it it literally brought together festivals from all around the world. So including um, it was organized by Tribeca, but it included Cannes, it had Toronto, Sundance, and Sydney Film Festival. And I think the significance of that, just the the meaning of bringing different film festivals together from around the world, like that was really. Yeah, you know, I think that really influenced the way of thinking and feeling as far as a global industry um, is concerned. And I don't know what that will look like in the future, but I hope that that um, I hope it remains kind of at the at the front of mind for film festivals all around the world. Um, but then you have other film festivals that you know simply transitioned to the online space and created not just a an online version of what they might have done, but a really exceptional digital event. Um, and I'm thinking of MIFF specifically right now because they had enough time and enough bravery to really push, I guess, push the benchmark up in terms of how you offer an online film festival. Um, and I think they did incredibly well. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of what happens from here and how the art sector more broadly manages this transition, I mean, these are good news stories that I've just talked about, but it's really difficult to grasp the cultural devastation that's happening across Australia right now I mean for many the work has just stopped and especially in like performing arts you know, resource intensive and highly collaborative work it's just stopped which is heartbreaking you know especially when as you and I both know you know people turn to artists to make sense of the world and our art sector is one of the most heavily impacted sectors but also the least supported by a federal government um, which is a much bigger conversation but I think you know, it's a real failure of imagination at this particular point in history because we're seeing this confluence of crises and our art sector has been so quick to respond as it always has been in any way, shape or form. You know, and I've only mentioned just a handful of examples of the way that the art sector responds to a circumstance like this, <laughs> like this, what is like this, there's no other circumstance like this. And, you know, I don't wanna say that this is the world is going and there's nothing that we can do about it. Like, I don't, I don't think that's true what i think is that we really need curiosity and we need experimentation on other ways of being other ways of engaging and problem solving and it just seems like the right time to do it and the right time to take it really seriously so to you know when i think about you know what's next or you know where to from here i think the question for all of us is what sort of art sector exists for us on the other side you know there's no way of predicting at all there's no way of predicting and Everybody has gotten a lot of predictions wrong, myself included, but what I do think is that this is actually an opportunity for our art sector to ask, well, what didn't work well in the old way of doing things? What didn't work in business as usual? Um, which is a much bigger conversation, but one that I know you and I both enjoy having. I think ultimately there's no way to get to the bottom of what's fair and what's equitable in our art sector, but if we don't question it, we go nowhere and even back in the good old precedented times our art sector was already buckling under a really old growth obsessed mindset and the current circumstances reveal not only the cracks but the complete breakdown of that paradigm uh, which had divisions so big that they are completely unsustainable and with that in mind i think just to reiterate the, the real work before us is to reconsider what we need what humans need and what role the art sector plays in facilitating that and i'm really inspired by that but you know it means that in terms of what's next it's not about expanding you know i don't think that it will be a really long time before our art sector is functioning at the you know the full capacity that it was even in january right but it's not about expanding it's not about hitting that you know sort of a a numbers-based capacity. It's about making it richer and deeper and more whole. And the more work we do now, the better, uh, because the more work we do now, the more resource we will be from a really, really deep place. You know, if we want to support our art sector in that way, if we want to demonstrate leadership in the art sector and beyond, we can't bypass this, this deep work that is before us right now in this adversity.
0: Thank you again to Imogen for joining us for today's conversation. If you'd like to find out more about Haraf and their work, you can go to harath.org.au. That's H R A F F.org.au. We also want to share with you that Humankind is returning for this year. That's from the second to the eighth of November. And tickets are available via their website at humankindfilmfestival.com.au new episodes of the Anything But Square podcast are released every Wednesday. And we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to our newsletter at fedsquare.com. Take care, and we'll see you next Wednesday.